Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. As a creative, what are you stockpiling? For today's guest, he is not only collecting historical tidbits and fodder, but also curiosity, hope, and optimism. Jarrett Keane is a professor and author of Hammer of the Dogs, a new novel about a dystopian future set in a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas. In this conversation, Jarrett shares an unbelievable wealth of wisdom about creativity and why we should be tour guides of our curiosities. He talks about the bright darkness of 1980s pop culture in which he found inspiration and the power of emotion and vulnerability to transform the creative process. He also touches on why you should steal time to write or create, the impact of writing alongside a student, how positive writing can change the world, and why we should be more silly and less serious in a world hell-bent on making us passive consumers of corporate propaganda. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 716. I'm endlessly curious about my twisted little brain's ability to generate fun and original narrative ideas, concepts out of historical tidbits or fodder or fuel. You know and I'm really curious about what the world offers those of us who do this spin yarns in the way, what the world offers us in terms of storytelling possibilities. Uh, for example, with Hammer of the Dogs, my novel, the impetus for this book is unusual. I was writing um, internal propaganda for a casino company on the Las Vegas Strip. And as you probably know, Las Vegas is a convention town so <laughs> i'd use my employee badge and sneak into these drone tech conventions where they showcase the latest weapons and you know remote control kill methods and uh tanks and you know uh, nautical drones uh, quadcopters just you know robo falcons everything you could think <laughs> of was was there and this was 10 years ago and i just took notes and I collected drone propaganda, you know, catalogs and and everything I could grab and stow away, take with me, you know, to my office and then back to my house to study. And I was just frightened and amazed by what I found. And, you know, it, the the link between everything, the, you know, the tech community, government, military law enforcement agencies, universities, tourism, the, the <laughs> connect, the connections between all that was head spinning. And oh, there was also, I should say, foreign government representatives there. From, <laughs> they, were trying to, they were shopping for yeah. the weapons they were going to use against other countries that were probably shopping there. Oh my gosh. And um, maybe to pacify their own populations, their own citizens. I, I don't know. I could only imagine. And so seeing all this gathered in you know uh, a convention space that probably a million a million and a half square feet it just inspired me to research and write an adventure novel which is about 
teenagers killing each other via remote control in a ruined Las Vegas. And if you know anything about the history of Nevada, you know this is where the uh, U.S. government, U.S. military tested a, a number of atomic weapons. And even today, you know, you've got Area 51, you've got, you know, Creech Air Force Base. A lot of the drone warfare that we conduct overseas is operated out of here. And it just seemed this was the Las Vegas was the perfect background. <laughs> yeah. To, to do this. And so my brain just kept coming up with ideas. And I just got, I just got curious. And the more that I leaned into it, the more that I studied it, the more information I gathered and collected, the more fascinating it became. And really any, any novel creative work, I think is an exorcism, a kind of, you know, a way to process the curiosity that led you to stockpile stack a big, you know, tower of, in my case, drone literature. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was why I wrote this book. I just got so uh, obsessed, fascinated. Curious. I mean, have you ever seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind? You know that yeah. kind of you're you're making sculptures out of uh, yes, potatoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it felt like. That's what yeah. writing a novel can often <laughs> feel like. It alienates you from everyone around you. <laughs> you go off to Devil's Tower, and the next thing you know, you're flying away in the spaceship, and that's uh that's where the story, that's where this the protagonist, the main character of my novel, had me. You know, because um, when you become uh, so fascinated by something, you feel a measure of competence, of um, of achievement, and you want to share. You want to be a tour guide. And I don't know. I, I, it's not just drones that would fascinate me. You know, whenever I read a book and it's well written, that person can take me anywhere. Yeah. The only example that's coming to mind at the moment is probably. Um, Jill Lepore's Wonder Woman history, biography of the creator. And um, I mean, she can write about anything and I'm fascinated, you know. So right. and Lepore covers all kinds of subjects. So I feel like curiosity is what keeps me coming back to this process, to writing. And even when I was a journalist, I did my best to cover those stories I was genuinely interested in. I try to sh avoid or skew those stories that I knew I wasn't going to care about, you know. And so that probably was detrimental to my career as a journalist and certainly to my right. bank account. But, you know, you have to be true to yourself to some degree. Yeah. You can only compromise so much before you become someone else, somebody yeah. you don't want to be. And so I get, you know, I'm not a historian, but I appreciate a, a great historical tour by someone who knows how to turn a phrase and write well. And that's what I look for. The drone literature was not written well, but <laughs> right. I have to say I pulled so much cool technical jargon from it and kind of reshaped it for my purposes that it became in some ways a found poem, like, like a oh, that's cool. novel length found poem. Yeah. And I just tried to sprinkle this bit of, um, specificity these technical details i just tried to sprinkle them throughout the book to give it verisimilitude to make it feel real yeah all the technology is real but i use it in a way that enters the realm of fantasy or science fiction i'm i'm intrigued with 
the depth at which your curiosity runs. Mm-hmm. How do you not get overwhelmed to the point where you can't write, where you aren't curious anymore, or you're you're just like, you know, numbing yourself out so that you don't have to deal with all of these details? This might sound unusual, but, you know, I think crying helps. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, tears, expressing grief, uh, emotion. I mean, uh, I'm sure your listeners can, they understand this perfectly well. You, you, it's an emotional journey. It's a, it takes a toll on you, no matter what you're writing. It could be, you know, uh, a simple children's book or a, I say simple, but you know what I mean? A, a, low, a minimum word count type of project, or yeah. it could be a 400 page, you know, sod buster. You're going, you're going on a journey and at the halfway mark, you're going to feel like you're flailing, drowning. You're going to feel lost. And you just have to process that. And I think uh, there's something in many of us, I know, because I've I talked to writers quite a bit. They, they can't process it. They don't know how to process it. But I just think sitting down in a dark room and, you know, without alcohol or anything, or, yeah. or drink, just sit there and kind of like emotionally process it and maybe cry a little bit. I think uh, it'll help. I know that sounds silly to some people but i i really have to sit down and process the the agony of it and especially with something as miserable as drone tech i was really pushing to make this story bright in a way that um a lot of the films and uh pop culture of the 80s made us feel i'm talking specifically about you know empire strikes back right red dawn conan the barbarian krull legend you know labyrinth these these movies that were dark but they had uh, a bright ending mm-hmm. that made you uh willow <laughs> these kinds of stories that we enjoyed they were frightening but uh at the end we felt optimistic we felt yeah. that we things were on the upturn things were going to improve and um that's what i set out to do with this book and I could only do it by processing my emotions through the, you know, midway to the, through the midway point, have a good cry and then move forward. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but that's what works for me. And I think it has worked for yeah, others. I think so too. I, I love the, I love the image of you sitting in a dark room too, you know, like having a good cry. Like what's the album that's playing in that moment to help oh, right. those tears. Oh, I mean, we had, uh, I think you're younger than me, but I, I, I had the best soundtrack as a, as a kid, you know, eighties music and, uh, eighties alt rock mm-hmm. before everything went really, uh, grim and serious with, uh, Nirvana, everything after that. But, um, the eighties was that moment where you could get away with listening to Huey Lewis and the news and also the cure, <laughs> you could have that bright darkness. Yeah. I don't know else to how else to put it, but it just you know, you could listen to Kate Bush and you could listen to uh, you know, Skinny Puppy and it was all of a a piece. And I love that. And uh, that kind of music is always playing and I did something a little different with this novel, which is I zeroed in on the music that I hated as a child, which was hard rock and glam metal. And I this is the music that um the rough kids at my school listen to, you know, the smoking in the bathroom, right. smoking in the boys' room kids, you know, the 
<laughs> the ones that got tattoos early and uh were shaving at age 16 or whatever and um i i i really delved into this music that i despised and i found something that i loved about it which was the energy the analog physicality of it the attitude the uh the fu-ness of it you know i kind of explored that and embraced it and i came to love these bands that i once thought were kind of cheesy you know like wasp <laughs> twisted sister <laughs> Dokken, alice cooper's constrictor album you know things like that uh i just i found myself leaning into this music that i thought that i had dismissed for so many years and it was amazing and it powered my protagonist my main character lash to 200 pages of uh, you know sci-fi adventure and um i was grateful uh, for that so the kind of music that i played during the construction of this particular novel was you know bizarrely enough uh you know stuff from the 80s that i didn't really enjoy I, I think that's a really good lesson, though, of of how we can revisit our biases yes. against the things that we're like <laughs> so against. I'm I'm seeing this image of um, a year and a half in the life of Metallica, and they're recording the Black Album, and they've got a photo of Kip Winger on a dartboard, and yes. you see him throwing darts at Kip Winger. Mm-hmm. It's just like I recently heard that they apologized to Kip Winger for that. So it's just like, it's a good example that we can all be better people in time. Yes. But, you know, I read that same article in Kerrang or whatever, (laughs) Metal Maniacs. And I thought the same thing. I was like, yeah, man, Winger is ridiculous. Metallica, you know, aggressive, hard. And, but um, going back and listening to Winger, you know, I can see why it was appealing to to some people. It's not my go-to, but, you know, I listened to a, a lot of Winger making, uh, writing, I should say, Hammer of the Dogs. And the title of uh, Hammer of the Dogs, I should say, is uh, is a nod to that Led Zeppelin book that came out, uh, the bio that appeared in 1985 by Stephen Davis, uh, Hammer of the Gods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I read this book as I guess it was 12 or 13 years old. And um, I was so shocked by the antics and the rock star-like behavior. But it, was, it felt so uh, fun and liberating to read these uh vignettes of hotel room destruction you know right. a wanton behavior i really enjoyed it because it was like clearing the sinuses like it I had too much you know everything um everything today is very you know feels, feels controlled and, manip- and manipulated and massaged and uh, digitally airbrushed and uh, the Led Zeppelin biography reminded me that things don't have to be that way. They can be different. And of course, this is not condoning any like terrible behavior on the part of a rock band. However, there is something that I think we've lost in our shift from the analog to the digital. And we've lost some of that energy and optimism. And even as, as erect as uh, some of these alleged scenes in Hammer of the Gods might have been the Led Zeppelin bio, I mean, um, there's also this sense that you know they're going to, they're going to conquer the world with their music, and I think there's something bright and optimistic about that. You know, four people in leather jackets 
against a brick wall are going to change the world you know right i think there's something about that that's still that's mythic that's you know it's like achilles odysseus diomedes and you know Agamemnon are going to <laughs> <gonna> change <laughs> the world so i wanted to pay tribute to that with the title of my book hammer of the dogs yeah and uh, of course lash sees herself as a as an animal like dog there in the ruined las vegas you know fighting for survival but she also sees herself as a as an instrument to uh, to to do good things of course the antagonist no spoilers but the antagonist is kind of this you know tech cyber thinks of himself as a cyber god you know an elon musk type so i wanted to to tap into that um as well you know the false messiah yeah and that's what lash is uh, is up against um she sees the old faith of um of the god that you know her parents told her about in uh, opposition to the technological deities that that have uh hemmed her in you know that have uh, uh ruined the world so i think i feel like the story is is timeless but also inspired by you know retro pop culture it's interesting because as as you talk about like the dystopian movies of the 80s that yeah. still bent towards an element of hope mm-hmm. i can't help but think about how in dystopian settings and our stuff today hope is often just gone like yes hope is just missing entirely and it's just like how do we get back to that is that something that we need to get back to or is it a new story that we have to learn how to tell in this fucked up world yes. of 21st century that we're living in i mean in many ways that's the argument i'm having with myself in hammer of the dogs uh you know lash wants to bring the best parts of the past to bear on the present she doesn't want to jettison everything yeah in exchange for a purely technological you know um oligarchy she wants things to uh resonate in a way that they used to but she knows at the same time that things can't go back you can't go back to the way things were and we shouldn't right but there we can take a moment to reflect and say you know what works mm-hmm. and what what can we bring to bear on the present on the future that will that will be worthy of us that will help us and that will you know allow us to be better than we were yeah. and um i think that's the argument i'm having uh with myself in this book and this I I will say that there are moments pop culture in pop culture today where you you see the 80s of what I call the bright darkness of the 80s uh the Mad Max Fury Road movie ends on that optimistic note mm-hmm. um Top Gun Maverick a real crowd pleaser that wasn't insulting mm-hmm. and you know there are moments where you'll find these dy- dystopian or adventure movies that that don't and in that grim way and that's what i like i mean quentin tarantino dismisses those 80s movies as just being you know schlocky and conservative and and uptight but um i disagree you know those movies were hard as nails and also very um um inspiring in their own weird way i mean it doesn't get any more dismal than red dawn but <laughs> at the end of it you're like well the wolverines live forever they ignited a rebellion you know they yeah. 
they they didn't just sit there passively and uh, and get tortured you know to death and so I, I i disagree vehemently with this idea that 80s entertainment is um you know inane or or simple or cheesy i mean yeah it was <laughs> right. inane and cheesy but it also had some good good parts i think stranger things is a, a testament to that the success of stranger things yeah so i think we just need to take what works what did work and bring it to bear on the president and then look for new new ways to innovate i think that's the hardest part of it all is because i think we have given our ability to look for new things to those oligarchies to those yes. gods and we don't trust ourselves to actually do the work and be like no this actually worked like yes. a blockbuster video actually worked <laughs> yes you know, or whatever yeah we're so eager and i see so many people eager on the internet to just hand it all over to ai to me that's completely ridiculous it's just plagiarism and um i'm not intimidated by it and uh, i don't think anyone else should be I, I think what needs to happen is we just need to write the best stories that we can write and remember that we don't have to be downers we can have a, a measure of fun and it's hard when you're in a literary super literary environment in a creative writing program and in an english department everything's so kind of everybody's so you know I, upset and sensitive yeah and yeah. sensitive and, and you know they're that's fine but i just i think there's we could also add some fun and some pleasure and some hope yeah to all of that and not wallow in despair and uh and fear you know because there's so many good good things are happening in the world we just forget because we doom scroll and as I make clear in the novel, that's what the the powers that be want us to do. They want us doom scrolling so that we're passive and and uh, that the hope they want the hope extinguished. Right. We can't, but we shouldn't go out like that. We shouldn't submit to to despair. We should use positive uh, energy and positive um, writing to change the world. Ooh. People people will join us if we uh, if we offer fun and and hope and, and i mean it sounds cheesy but if you offer some love mm -hmm. and if you love your reader and if you love your book and you love your characters all that's going to be communicated right and you know we don't have to inhabit that requiem for a dream <laughs> landscape you know, we, could, right. we could live another way we could yeah. exist in another place i really do believe that and that's what lash accomplishes with the uh, this novel she has to get aggressive to do it but you know everybody she dispatches has it coming <laughs> and that's what makes it fun yeah so obviously you've done a lot of different writing as a journalist yes. as a professor as you know <laughs> a student yes novelist how yes. is the writing for the novel different for you than say you know like as a journalist or even an academic i guess the the easiest way to put it is there was no deadlines <laughs> there was no effort to appeal to an editor i mean i just didn't think about editors i didn't think about agents i didn't think about anything thing like that i just thought of you know what would people want to read what would my students want to read my students who grew up reading you know, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, uh, Maze Runner, Attack on Titan, you know, what, what would they want to see? Uh, what would they want to read? What would they, you know, what, what movie would they want to watch? What anime? 
what manga. And so I created a book that's essentially a novel that's essentially a series of set pieces, one more outlandish than the other. So if you go through the book, it just builds and builds and builds. And then I try to, you know, show characterization and develop the character in the interludes or in the moments, the brief moments of respite that are offered throughout. I, I thought that was the best way to approach this uh, project. You know, I'm not going to worry about um, a deadline. I'm not going to worry about money. I'm not going to worry about, it's going to please myself and be um, really selfish in my effort to please others. And so I thought that was the, um, the best approach. And uh, I think it succeeded. I really love what I created. I don't, you know, I hope it sells more than a few hundred copies, but you know, this is a, as you know, yeah. everyone knows who listens to this uh, show. I mean, selling books is the hardest thing you could do. It's the most uh, impossible task you could under undertake. And so I'm just happy to have created something that I love. And I, I know that others will love if they encounter it. And that's really the the only difference. The writing commercially or writing for money is such a game that you you play with um, with your editors, with your with your agents, with your you know it, it's it's an it's an attempt to please people who are capricious and change their mind on a dime. They just you know one moment they need this, another moment they need that, and you do your best. And I love doing it. Um, I loved writing for money. It was the ultimate uh, validation, getting a paycheck in the mail. And certainly when I got hired by the casino corporations to write employee newsletters and showcase spotlight, you know, Cirque du Soleil acrobats and sous chefs and guest room attendants, and, you know, window washers. I loved, I loved that. That was like a world within a world. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about back of house casino operations as a result. So that was fun as well. But this novel, I was expressing, like, even though I'm not in the book, I was expressing my innermost fears, anxieties, passions. So I was I was surprisingly vulnerable in the process of writing this book because I knew that everything that I thought and felt would be on display. Um, and I think that's true of, of, of anyone who writes a novel, even, you know, a commercial techno thriller and everything. <laughs> It's, it's like ticker tape of your unconscious mind. It's just there exposed for anyone to look at. So I felt, felt very vulnerable and I was surprised by those feelings. I thought I was going to write like this novel and I would disappear inside my <laughs> character. But uh, my character, it turns out, was sharing some ideas that I secretly had held for many years regarding technology and, mm -hmm. and um, imperialism and capitalism and collectivism and the you know the dangers of all that and so i was just uh shocked to feel that that naked in the yeah. process of writing this book and uh that said i'm pleased with the result and i'll probably do it again <laughs> <laughs> i love that the, the tears the yeah. agony the, the doubt the incriminate self-incrimination the mm -hmm. you know the the risk I'll, I'll run the risk but um because i love what i've created but you know, it is a different animal and I don't know if I can go back to writing for money again, especially now that I'm a professor, you know, everything's more rarefied. I have to write to keep my job. I have to, what is it? Publish or perish. I have to, 
keep publishing with university academic presses in order to secure tenure. Um, but I'm, I really am grateful for the experience of having written uh, for a paycheck because it really taught me uh, so much about myself and what I'm capable of. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't go back and change it. I love the word that you used, selfish. Yes. Because <laughs> in the world we live in, the rule says you don't be selfish. Mm-hmm. And yet it's amazing what you were able to accomplish by, you know, being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to explore your curiosities, being willing to write for who you think would want to read this. And and I think it's almost like a a manifesto for redeeming the word selfish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm using it in a way that is uh, artistic. There's yeah. also the the non-artistic definition, and we we know what that's about. Um, right. But you know, there there are moments where you we our creativity is skewed towards a goal that's not our own, mm-hmm. and that's whether we're trying to make money to eat and pay rent, or you know, as you as we all know today, I mean, a, a, a simple hospital visit can can wipe you out. You know, yeah. in this uh, in this world that we've created here in the uh, in the U.S., so I I would suggest that if you can steal time, and I've stolen time before, whether it's at my you know corporate job or you know I'm supposed to be mowing the yard or cleaning something, but rather you know spend an hour writing for myself, uh, I'm I'm better to other people. <laughs> My coworkers, I'm, I'm right. much nicer when I uh, take a moment to you know, do something for myself. And there's so many pressures that we 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 place upon ourselves that are just you know unnecessary, right? Uh, especially with social media, mm-hmm. always trying to keep up with you know, you know compete with others or get enough likes or you know get enough views, downloads, whatever. But you know, a lot of what we do, the best things that we do are that we often do them for free or would do them for free. Mm-hmm. And so we have to remember that and just try to keep the light uh, burning. Um, there are so many challenges to that. I've, I've mentioned a few of them already. Um, but I just think a lot of it is uh, an attitude, like a perception, like a way of approaching the world. And if you do it, um, as many of your previous guests have, have insisted, you know, if you if you come at it with the right angle, the right perspective, the right, you know, energy, it'll, it really makes a difference. And so I, that's what I try to, to do is harness uh, the best energy I could get and put it towards this book. And it made me a better um, person to be around in the end, not as it was happening probably. <laughs> right. In the end, I feel a lot uh, a sense of achievement, validation, you know, yeah. especially when it, the book is out. You see it on a bookshelf and you're like, I did something. It's worth it. You get an email from a fan, you know, Yeah. what's uncomfortable is when you write a book that you hate <laughs> I've done in the past and then you get fan mail and you're like, man, well, I really hated writing that book, but I'm glad it made you, <laughs> I'm glad it made you happy because <laughs> that's happened. You know? Oh, I bet. So w- when you've got that energy and, and you're then headed into the classroom to you know, teach. Yeah. How does that energy affect the room? How does it affect students? I guess 
the most obvious way is when you bring a an energy with you a positive energy they stop they stop sleeping in class they stop looking at their phones they stop leaning on their hands they you know they, they stop face planning they stop and they sit up a little straighter and they make more eye contact and they start talking and it just goes from there but it's not easy i mean it's it's hard to do there are so many distractions and we've become even more uh, let's see digital or computer focused uh in the last few years so that's a struggle but i i'm up for the challenge and students you know they feed off the energy that you bring if you come into the class you've known this you step into a classroom you step into a room and you bring a negative stuff with you and you're sad or you're self-effacing you know they're <laughs> that's not good modeling you want to model for them you want to show them right oh it's break time already okay yeah, right. <laughs> i mean i guess one thing i i should make clear is i wrote this book with my students so um i started bringing in a chapter every week to my creative writing class workshop and um i read it to them i performed it for them this and this is not a trunk novel this is not something i was sitting on for years or whatever this is like something i wrote in the course of a, a semester well a big chunk of it i should say and i just presented a, a new chapter for 50, you know every week for 15 weeks what a cool experience for them yeah they got to see the yeah. you know the how the sausage was made and uh, <laughs> but you know what i didn't just do that myself they they a, a number of them took it upon themselves to bring a new chapter and every week we started just getting some real collective momentum <laughs> and that was inspiring and as a result, uh, I've had two steps, two students from that workshop publish their the novels they started in that class. Wow, that's awesome. And another student published several stories that were written during that same workshop. And uh, a couple of other students who have gone on to work for literary agencies in New York and um, one student uh, at a film company in LA. So, and that's, and I, credit that to i didn't believe in energy until a few years ago but i credit that to the kind of attitude readjustment that i needed to bring um to the class to the classroom yeah any any classroom that i'm in it can be american literature graphic novel to me that's the uh the best thing you can do for a student is show them a path and model for them mm -hmm. and let them know that they're going to make it if they keep at it yeah might take a long time but you'll make it oh it took me forever <laughs> i mean i mean i'm i'm 50 so 50 i'm 50 years old and um this is my first novel. i mean i've published other books and worked as a journalist and a corporate propagandist but i you know this is uh i never gave up and so yeah. here i am and i'm doing okay is there a a story in pop culture whether it's a film story or uh, music band mythology that defined your sense of resilience and never giving up there are many but i guess the who can forget you know cormac mccarthy and his um experience as a writer you know he really didn't find success until uh well into his uh adult years and i don't know i feel like writing is one of those things you don't have to be a young pup to 
you know, if you're, if you're not a success at age 22, guess what? It's okay. Yeah. At 52 or 62 or 72 writing is something you can age gracefully into mm-hmm. unlike rock stardom or <laughs> Hollywood. I don't know. There's a lot of rock stars that are still out there. Yes. <laughs> yes. But they, but they made it big when they were younger. That's uh, true. That's true. But as a novelist, as a, an essayist, as a nonfictioner, a poet, even you can, I think you can age gracefully into the role of a, of a writer. And it's even one of those things and I don't want to give anyone false hope, but you know, when you when you're old enough to retire, or, you know, pack it up, you've done your time in the corporate world, and you're, guess what? The computer's waiting there for you. The blank page is is calling to you. You know, sit down and and write because um, chances are the journey of that, the process of it, will be its own reward, as it was for me. As someone who teaches graphic novels, you know, why is the graphic novel often treated as a second-class citizen in the literature world? Comic books have always been dubious. Uh, They've always faced enormous criticism. I mean, this goes all the way back to the 50s when psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published that book on the connection, what was it, between... uh, comic books and juvenile delinquency seduction of the innocent. I don't know if you're familiar with that. <laughs> 1954. Um, and you know, comics are suspect. Um, I think it's because they, they remind us of our primitive cave painting days, you know, images, they can't be trusted. You know, they're false idols, graven images and, uh, what else what's the other cliche the the image is worth a thousand words thousand words and (laughs) images can't be controlled i mean and i think the images are dangerous i mean they can be weaponized and i think that makes people uncomfortable and so comic books are always going to be suspect graphic novels graphic memoirs as they are today they're uh once again you know um, but, you know, today they're also used as symbols, you know, books are, they're symbols of a, of a larger, you know, cultural conflict, political conflict. But I think comic books uh, are also dreams. You know, they also step outside that political cultural arena and they give us a chance to, the best comics, I would argue, give us a chance to think about life from a different vantage. And imagine what it would be like to, I don't know, be an alien from another world, to be a gladiator in the arena, to be a, a historical figure, the obscure yet powerful. I mean, these these stories and the graphic novel format are just, they're too powerful to contain. And I think the heyday of the graphic novel is over and we're just sort of in this what would I call it? Uh, it's becoming increasingly institutionalized. Uh, you'll, you see more college syllabi with graphic novels on them. I think that's a great thing. <laughs> right. But there's also going to be some turbulence involved. So it's going to be a shaky transition. And I think graphic novels, as um, they continue to evolve, they will become more 
I don't know what's the word. They will become more sophisticated elite as they are today. The, the format is definitely better than what you and I grew up with. You know, you and I grew up with comic books that had like beef jerky ads in them, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like wrestling, yeah, commercial rest, wrestling advertisements. Um, it's a different world for the graphic narrative, the graphic memoir. A lot of identity memoirs out today, getting a lot of uh, winning a lot of awards and. I think that's great to see the the comic book evolve and and change and, and yeah. but I you know I do think we've lost something uh you know once once they took out those beef jerky ads we lost some of that <laughs> that crude energy that you know that uh the wildness of it the feralness of it we, we've lost that and I think um comics should uh, comics creators should t- look back and 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 see what worked and maybe reintroduce some of those ideas because i think they're too much in a hurry to you know to you know those hostess twinkies ads were <laughs> the comics within the comic book do you remember those i'd be like a one page <laughs> yeah. ad where the hulk would eat a bunch of twinkies or something <laughs> uh, it, was, it was ridiculous but i think everyone's a little too serious about comics today and they need to like have a little more fun yeah and step outside of that political cultural conflict because it's uh, not really doing anyone any good. And I think we should entertain and, and uh, be generous to our, to our readers, to, to the readership and remember that, that, you know, it's a silly format and we can be a little silly sometimes. Right. I agree. I mean, it's almost like comic books are treated now for billion dollar IP for future films. As it's too serious. To it's too much pressure. Going. Yeah, it's too, it's too much pressure to put on a, uh, you know, on a Blue Beetle movie. You know, uh, I think, you know, people should just make movies for the the right reasons, which is, you know, money and, you know, silliness. <laughs> <laughs> you can't watch a movie like Flash Gordon from the eighties and, and not smile, you know, while you're watching it. Uh, it's too ridiculous it's so fun exactly or that masters of the universe live action movie from mm. 1990 you know, so ridiculous but um courtney cox yes i mean <laughs> it's all I mean, she probably had a terrible time making the movie, but it was it's fun for us to watch we had a good time at the in the you know i i watched a direct-to-video i think it might have been direct-to-video if i recall but um i just love that kind of silliness that kind of energy you know a little bit of camp a little bit of tongue-in-cheek and i think that'll go a long way towards uh repairing some of this uh you know these conflicts that we have today with regard controversies with regard to the graphic novel graphic memoir uh we shouldn't put too much pressure on ourselves as creators well i think too looking at how often graphic novels are banned or challenged create that fear i think for artists and writers as well because it's like can i truly tell my story or am i going to be another example right and i think the way around that too is um the way that comics got around you know the comics code authority you know just be a little clever and be a little subtle and be a little find a way to work around it you know i say that as a professor so it's it's different for people who are out there hustling for money when in their writing. So I understand that. But I think that if we come at it differently with, we don't put so much pressure on our story and ourselves and our identities and just 
maybe we'll laugh at ourselves and each other and maybe our predicament a little more. I think it'll it'll go uh, a bit further. I think we'll get more out of it. We've all been censored to some degree over some nonsense, but honestly, censorship comes in all directions and from places you wouldn't expect. And that's been one thing I've learned too, like um, especially stuff that I was covering for the, you know, the newspapers or the magazines. They'd suddenly say, well, we can't, cover that because of something and I, oh okay whatever <laughs> i thought we were i thought we were the radical you know progressive uh, right. voice and then suddenly we became scared of everything so i think we've got to um i don't want to say lighten up but we should definitely look at ourselves and understand that we are full of folly mm. yeah. if we can find a way to tell our story that maybe is less um what's it uh ham-fisted and maybe add a little bit of a dash of humor and uh camp that we can go go a lot further i mean i, I don't know how you feel about artists like freddie mercury and, and and things like that but they they define my aesthetic my taste and and just about everything oh yeah and um i'm grateful and prince you know um these these are artists who david bowie these are artists who blurred all boundaries and were and were not afraid but they also had a really impish sense of humor i think that al allowed them to get away with uh, a lot of cool things that otherwise would have been impossible you know at the time given the the circumstances the repression the, etc <laughs> right and what i'm what i'm hearing throughout this conversation jared is a real strong need for individuals for them to be wild and feral with their ideas yes to to share vividly wildly broadly without worrying too much about the other the results yes uh, not worrying about the personal brand the brand strategy of their writing but just i mean you can but wouldn't it be miserable i mean i don't know I, yeah. I, I, it sounds exhausting uh, you know, I, I know a few writers who manage their brands and, you know, their brands are, there's only so much you can control and the rest just has to be what it is. I feel like the the more liberated you are, I, th I feel like we are the, our own worst enemies when it comes to that as creators. Like we put too many restrictions on ourselves and too much pressure. I think we have to be as wild and as fun as we can be in order to make an impact in a culture that is increasingly digital and controlled and manipulated, misinformed, you know, all that. I think we have to work around it. Where do we start? Yeah, I think we should start with, I think what you started with, curiosity, you know, find those hidden historical nuggets, those hidden stories that might be in our own lives, our own families and kind of bring those to light and explore those and not worry so much about you know superheroes or make our <laughs> own new superheroes we don't need another skywalker film <laughs> I, I mean I, you know that is part of it that is part yeah. of it like there, there's like a lot of uh aren't there star Wars, i almost said star trek aren't there star wars fans that hate star wars or something or whatever mm -hmm. yeah they hate think, the new ones they hate the old ones yeah yeah fear think, four through six i think really we have to sidestep and take that risk i mean i guess i could have written a, a more i could have 
try to pitch an agent on writing a pre-existing IP character or something like I could have bothered gone down that road, write a Tom Clancy novel, you know, with, with <laughs> my name in really small letters. Right. And Work with James Patterson. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to create our own stuff and, you know, lash and hammer of the dogs is my own character. And there's so much of me in the character, um, you know, uh, so much of, you know, you know, the, the whole mixed race thing, the whole, um, you know, caught between two worlds, uh, that to me, uh, is something I wanted to explore. There wasn't really a YA adventure novel that I could find where there was a character, um, you know, with a, a Hispanic mother and a, a white father, you know, so I wanted to really dig into that, um, and offer, you know, my own version of representation. I feel like that, has been, um, what's the word, obscured over the, all these other discussions. Right. And I wanted to create something new, something different, you know. Drone tech, teenagers ruin Las Vegas. I, I thought that was the, uh, no one, I hadn't seen that before. Right. And I wanted to um, present that, something new, original. I wanted to create my own Zorro, my own Luke Skywalker, my own Flash Gordon, my own Buck Rogers. Um, I think that's where we have to go yeah. and just let the corporations eat themselves. Oh, they are. They're in the process of it. <laughs> I, but I love what you're saying though. We can, we can write our own heroes. We can create our own heroes. We, we can go get, you know, Joseph Campbell's book, a hero with a thousand faces oh, and, yeah. in our own mythology. Yeah. We can do that. We don't have to wait for, you know, Disney Bob Iger to like bestow upon us $10 to create a billion for them. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to make them money any more money. Um, I mean, it's so weird because, you know, I understand like if you get offered a paycheck to do something, you want to do it. And if that means writing a, I don't know, a Superman movie and, you know, except that Superman doesn't resemble the Superman from the comics at all. And, you know, you, you, you want the paycheck, you got to get paid, you got to eat. And I totally understand and respect that. But um, if there is Mac and cheese in your cupboard and you're okay, and you got rent paid for the next few months or covered for the next few months, you should try doing something of your own, something that you own. Yeah. And um, because anything you create for a corporation will be stolen from you. We've seen that happened with Jack Kirby, you know, everything he created for Marvel and really for DC, uh, it was their property. It was the corporations grabbed it all and, le and left him and his family with, uh, with not much until that lawsuit, of course. But, you know, anything you, when you deal with a, a corporation, you're dealing with a monster that doesn't really care about, you, you know, right. your efforts, your originality, your, your concept, your, your characters. So, and even the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, another great example. Those those guys own the everything, and then they lost everything. And you have to be careful, um, in, and not invite the don't play with the devil too much. <laughs> bite you. They'll take everything. There's the there's the book two of the Hammer of the Dog series. <laughs> yes. Well, I have I had three books mapped out, but I only wrote one of them because I don't want to be that guy with three not three unpublished novels in my 
<laughs> drunk. Yes, I thought I'll write them one at one at a time. Right. See what happens. Uh, hopefully, this first one will sell enough copies so that I can um, write the next two. Because uh, I'd love to. I've got adventures for Lash planned out. You know, centered outer space, centered to Mars. Yeah. I think Go hang drone, out with John Carter. Yeah, a drone war on Mars. I think is uh, would be a lot of fun. You yeah. know, shifting the action interplanetary. Uh, it, it's the rule. You know, you have to the space opera. You have to <laughs> get us into another planet and. That's right and uh, see how your character fares on that environment. Well, when, when does the book hit the shelves? Uh, the official release date is September 12th, but uh, I ordered one on Amazon and it arrived. So it's, it's available now. Nice. Okay. If you want to order it um, online, get it from your uh, independent bookstore in town. Uh, it's ready. It's out there. It's circulating. <laughs> That's awesome. So a couple last questions for you. If you could write a bio of any band, who would it be about? I think I've moved on from thinking about bands as an interesting entity. Uh, and of course, I wrote uh, a rock band bio many years ago. I uh, had a great experience with it. But I don't know. I just feel like I'm in a different place. But if you if you forced me to choose, I would probably write a bio, even though it it's it's a tragic story I, in some ways. I would write a bio of uh, Big Country from the 80s. Do you remember that band? In I a, don't they, remember that band. They have a song called In a Big Country. Hmm. Dreams. Um, they sing about um, dreams and and other worlds and, uh, and just, you know, uh, mystical lands and things like that. It's probably in your 80s Spotify mix somewhere. Buried. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Jared, as we wrap up our time together, what wisdom would you like to leave with the audience? I guess the um, the advice I have is to take time for yourself, nurture your your health, your fitness, your internal your internal life. Mm. Whether that means writing or I don't know, gardening, nurturing others who need it, um, or do all three of those. I guess, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Just don't succumb to uh, despair and uh, and don't be afraid to uh, take a moment. You know, it's become sort of a um, a cliche in some ways, but you really have to take these uh, mental health days or, you know, self-care days. I really think that's important. And um, take a cue from Simone Biles and just, you know, just kind of take a moment. Just You don't have to be in the fray all the time. Mm -hmm. um, you're, we're worth it. I mean, we, we're all, we, we're all that we have in the end. We have to take care of ourselves and each other. Yeah. And uh, it's better than going into a situation where, you know, it's going to be rough. Mm -hmm. I don't think you should be afraid of, of like going to work or something like that. But I do think you should, when it comes to sit down, sitting down and writing, you have to be, nurturing and you have to be more positive and have more fun than you than you probably think you deserve well what book podcast or resource is blowing your mind right now oh uh werner herzog a guide for the perplexed conversations with paul cronin that's one of my favorites do you know this book i have it on my bookshelf right now oh my goodness have you read through this at all it's like i've i've read the first edition which was called herzog on herzog right right that's what uh, I, I and then so i haven't finished the that one that you have 
well, this is my first encounter with these um, interviews, these conversations mm-hmm. with the filmmaker Werner Herzog. But wow, like you can dip in here, and even when he's uh, angry or disappointed, <laughs> there's like constructive energy to be found there. Yes. Um, and as he's made some of the most incredible films, uh, uh, Grizzly Man, you know, uh, A Gear of the Wrath of God. These are just incredible landmark movies. And I had no idea he was quite this fascinating. Um, I could just keep reading and reading. And, and he's such a dedicated and committed artist. You know, he's not scared of anything. He doesn't back down. And, and what I love about him too is like he produces his own stuff. Yes. And he's his, I heard him say, I think it was on Mark Marin's podcast, where he's just like, I can make films faster than studios can release them. Yes. And, you know, that's, and that's amazing to me. It's that energy, that discipline. I don't know if it is discipline. He just he just likes to create. At some point it ceases to become discipline and it's just, you know, just Breath. productivity. <laughs> Breath. Breath, yes. <laughs> And then uh, I don't know how many of your I, I can't get a, a good read on your demographic uh, precisely, but uh, Mary Oliver's uh, Upstream's collection of selected essays. I love reading Mary Oliver's thoughts on uh, the natural world and you know these meditations on I don't know work and writing and love. I think it's uh, terrific. She always finds a way to startle me to move me. So Mary Oliver's Upstream Selected uh, Essays. That's another great book. I have other great books here, but um, those are the two that are, are within immediate reach. There were so many amazing insights in this conversation with Jarrett that I probably need to go back and listen to it again. I hope you'll get his book, Hammer of the Dogs. After our conversation, I ordered it and absolutely loved it. And if you join the Getting Work to Work Substack, I've got the link in the show notes at gwtw.co slash 716. I'm actually going to give away a copy to one subscriber at random at the end of September. So join today for that opportunity and to get weekly emails about feeding your curiosity, sparking your creativity, and even forging your own future. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.